Hey, welcome to the Hell Has an Exit podcast. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. This show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com. Welcome to Hell Has an Exit podcast. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. Today I have my good friend, Jacob Bradshaw. He's got an amazing story. I actually don't know most of it, so it'd be interesting to hear it. So I guess uh, let's start from the beginning, man. Thanks for having me on, Brian. Really uh, big fan of the podcast. I'm going to start, I'm going to talk about my kind of early childhood for a little bit. And the reason I want to talk about it is I had, uh, and I didn't learn this until I got into recovery, but I have these traits of alcoholism, right? That they exhibited themselves way before I took a drink or got high. So I was born in Huntington, West Virginia, which is in the middle of nowhere. My Mm -hmm. mom was a she was an undergrad. She had me young. I think she was 20, 21 when she had me, junior, senior in college. And my dad wasn't around, right? It was like a young college kind of relationship that resulted in, in me. So my mom has me and I've got no father around. And my mom was, you know, surrounded by like really strong, you know, funny, cool women. And that's who I was raised by you know, for like the first three, four years of my life. So Huntington, West Virginia now, because of Purdue Pharma and the opioid epidemic, it's, it's ground zero, right? It's, it's very sad to even drive through Huntington. Mm-hmm. But in the time, at this time, it was a really cool, artsy, you know, a lot of Grateful Deadheads, a lot of, you know, different, it was a cool place to be a kid. And some of my earliest memories were, you know, my mom and my aunt and her friends, you know, taking me to see Rocky Horror Picture Show when I'm three, four years old, mm-hmm. right? So it was a cool child. Love Rocky Horror. Lo- love it. Love it to this day. So then my mom finishes her undergrad. She ended up getting her master's when it was all said and done, but she finishes her undergrad and she moves back to where I'm originally from and my family's from, which is Southern Ohio, Right. Maybe we'll get into it a little bit later. I'm from Portsmouth, Ohio is where I was, you know, raised from four years old on. That's the legitimate ground zero, the opioid epidemic. It was where the first doctors were ever federally prosecuted for opening pill mills. I've done some stories with the New York Times pretty recently where they've focused in on that area as where where it all started. So I moved back there when I'm four or five years old and my mom gets married, right? Great guy. We get a house and then we build a house and I've got, you know, he was, like I said, really good guy, hardworking guy, did everything he could to show me, you know, how to be responsible, how to be a man, taught me how to, you know, fight and play ball and, you know, all all the stuff that dead little boys do. But I immediately recognized like, this is an authority figure in my life. And I rebelled against that instantly. And you think because he wasn't your real dad? I think that probably had a subliminally a little to do with it, probably a lot to do with it. And then I think a lot of it is I just have this deep-seated hatred for authority. Mm-hmm. And my mom and her friends, it was like, really, like, do whatever you want to do. You know what I mean? You want to paint on the walls, paint on the walls. <laughs> 
and then, you know, he's coming in trying to teach me a little bit of responsibility. And I didn't like it immediately. And more importantly, I knew from a very young age, we're talking five, six, that my mom had guilt for my real dad not being around. And I knew I could play that against him. And I knew I could use it to get what I want. At the time, it was DuckTales for Nintendo or, you know, whatever the the new thing that I wanted, I could kind of pin them against each other. And that manipulation, it's always been with me, right? Mm-hmm. And, and what I've learned now is like, that's alcoholism. That's drug addiction. Those abandonment issues that I had from Jump Street, those are the root causations of like why I ended up really self-destructing later in life. So I get into school. I do really well in school. I, I always did. You know, had I had the same group of friends for a long time, got into baseball when I was five years old, and just kind of had like a very normal suburban life, right? You know, from the outside looking in, looked like, you know, I clearly had everything I needed, had pretty much everything I wanted, and things were good. You know, other than maybe those abandonment issues, no trauma, no parents arguing, nothing. So I go through elementary school. I get into junior high school. And I actually, I took a, an IQ test and I took another test that got me into, got me into a program called Talented and Gifted, which some of you uh, may, may have heard of or have had in your schools. And so I went to like a special part of the school with other kids that were in Talented and Gifted and, you know, Talented and Gifted programs, sixth grade, seventh grade, going into eighth grade, I realized it wasn't cool. I was also not a genius uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm, I've always been, you know, relatively perceptive and smart. And I knew that this program was like, if I stay in this, it's going to help me get into a great college, which is going to help me get a great job and have a great life. Like I was cognizant of all these things, but I very clearly remember saying, I'd rather be cool, man. I'd much rather be cool. And like reading, you know, Thoreau in eighth grade, uh, it's not cool. <laughs> and I quit and I dropped out. And this is like a another alcoholic drug addict theme of my life of quitting, of a, you know, I, I have a, a fear of failure. I have a fear of success. And without a program, these are, these are the kind of things that I do. So I quit, go into high school. And then the whole, you know, a lot of you are probably familiar with it. The whole friend circle starts to change. I'm still playing, you know, I played varsity sports pretty early in high school, but I start Experiment with alcohol and experiment with weed. And in this day, this is right before Oxycontin and Purdue Pharma targeted my area. That looked like, you know, getting a, a bottle of Mad Dog 2020 and me and, and a couple of my 14, 15 year old buddies camping out and drinking so much we get sick, right? And you hear a lot of old timers, and this is cool, it's their story, but you hear a lot of people talk about like the first time I took that drink, like I, it was it, like I knew. That wasn't my experience with it. I did it because I liked doing something I knew was going against the grain, going against the authority, and it made me cool and it made me fit in. And that's really what I loved about it. I didn't really like the the effects at first produced by alcohol. I didn't. I was the same way. And I think, dude, and I, I really think like that's like, and I'm not saying anyone, you know, it's not me to judge who's the real deal and who's not, but it's like in retrospect, these like these underlying like emptiness, you know, voids that I had inside of me, like, you know, this is, this is alcoholism for me. Right. And I can very clearly remember getting a little older, 16 and going to the keg parties. And I would go to the keg back and forth 30 times, but I'm only four beers in because when you're not looking, 
I'm going behind a tree and I'm dumping the beer out, right? Because mm-hmm. I just wanted you all to see I'm drinking 30 beers. Mm-hmm. I'm, the, I'm the fucking man. That, man, that desire to fit in, bro, that is like, you know, luckily early in life, like alcohol, you know, even though I am an alcoholic, it didn't really set in on me like that. But all of those behaviors, like they really set the course for, uh, for years of chaos and misery. And then, and maybe we can link an article because I, I have, I've, I've written some articles with some cool folks about like this time frame. but this is when Purdue Pharma targeted Southern Ohio, Eastern Kentucky with Oxycontin. And, you know, I had friends whose dads were doctors and like, you know, a lot of people put a lot of blame on the doctors and, and a lot of times there's reason to do so. But really what was happening was Purdue Pharma sent these drug reps, these marketing experts into these areas because they had done research. They knew there was a lot of blue collar workers, a lot of back injuries, a lot of pain. They knew this was the area to target for this new long acting quote. I'm doing air mm-hmm. quotes with my fingers. Pain medication. So not addictive. So not very non-addictive, <laughs> not according addictive, to these. Not habit-forming. Not habit-forming, life-saving mm-hmm. medication. And so these reps- with the time release. <laughs> these reps would come in, and they would sit down with these doctors. And like the a lot of these doctors, some excluded, they really fell for it. They were family doctors, and they really, you know, people from the Midwest, man, they care about their community, they care about each other. And they bought into this hook, line, and sinker, like, we've got a medicine that is going to help your your patients, right? And they bought into it. And I'm telling you, this is like the late 90s, um, 99, it exploded. I'm graduating high school, almost. I think 99, I was a junior. And we would now go to parties, which previously people would be drinking, You'd see some some weed being passed around. But in my town, like hard drugs weren't a thing. Unless I was watching train spotting. Mm-hmm. I never heard anybody talk about heroin, never knew anyone who had done heroin, never heard about cocaine. I think my dad, you know, maybe talked about some bikers back in the day making crank or something, but it was not around. It just didn't exist. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, within six months, you go to a party, you see the jocks and the cool kids and the cheerleaders and the stoners, and they're smoking weed and they're drinking out of the keg. And there's also a plate being passed around the room with an Oxycontin or 10 with lines chopped up. Mm-hmm. And, and every social circle was just <sniffs> snorting a line of Oxycontin. We didn't know. We didn't know we were doing heroin. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I mean, well, I was already addicted to crack when I did Oxy, but I had no idea that I was doing an even harder drug or something similar to crack when I did Oxy's. It was kind of like something to, if anything, like a lesser, not as addictive drug that was pretty social because it doesn't put you in a crazy nod when you first start doing it. It makes you real, you know, you start talking, you have a lot of energy. Um, What I would always tell people on opiates is that Someone could be like, hey, you got to go paint the fence for 12 hours. And if you're on opiates, <laughs> if you do an Oxy-80, you do it with a smile on your face yeah. for those eight hours. Yeah. It makes anything enjoyable. Yeah, absolutely. And we had never, we didn't have any, um, there was no, you know, we have a lot of advocacy out there now, right? In schools, there's people, they're coming in, they're telling their story. You know, it, the word is out now, fortunately, and, and clearly we still have a, a horrible opioid epidemic and problem. But for the most part, people know, like if I do heroin, it's probably a bad idea. We had a cop that maybe came into school once every three years with a big suitcase full of drugs, mm-hmm. told us what they were, and we were all like, wow, that's cool. I want to, you know, I want to try LSD or whatever mm-hmm. the case may be. But no one told us anything about prescription pills, right? So I can very clearly remember doing Oxycontin every day 
and being able to say like, at least I'm not a drug addict. At least I'm not a junkie. At least I'm not doing crack or coke or heroin because I, we were able to make that separation because it was a prescription. The doctor wrote it, mm-hmm. right? Um, and you're not buying it in the hood. No. And whatever. No. And, and that was another byproduct, man, of this, uh, of this Purdue Pharma thing, right? So you had a lot of people who were older and they're on SSRI. They hadn't seen $10,000 cash probably ever. And now all of a sudden they're on this medication for their stomach or for their knee or for their back and like whispers and, and they're hearing from their sons or daughters, friends that, hey, this, this prescription's worth, you know, $60 a pill. You know, I've got 120, 180 of these. That's $10,000, right? So a lot of good people started selling drugs and they were able to justify to themselves the same way that I was able to justify taking it. It's not a drug. I'm not selling heroin. It's prescriptions from the doctor. It's not going to hurt anybody. And so they were everywhere immediately. And then very, very quickly, my friends started to die. And like I had one traumatic death before this. It was a car wreck. A lot of us have that, unfortunately, in school where we have that one friend who passed away. You know, my buddy Tommy Barber wrecked his Mustang. And, you know, it was a tough thing to go through at 14, 15. But that was that was the only death I had dealt with. And now all of a sudden, my friend Anthony Perkins, you know, whose dad was a dentist or doctor, whatever, dies. And then my friend Eric Ruby dies. And my friend Aaron Metzler dies. And then Stevie Knoll dies. Death after death after death. At 19, 20, 21, all my friends are dying. And there was no infrastructure. There was no treatment. We had like court-ordered treatment centers around, but there was no like, no one was helping my entire generation deal with the trauma of losing 30, 40, 50% of their friends at that age, right? And so I went to what I knew like my solution was, and it was my solution for a long time. I continued to get high. That's, that's you know, drugs aren't my problem. They look like they are. They're why I've been to two dozen county jails and state prison, federal prison, and had family issues. It's all a result of drugs, but drugs aren't the problem. Like my problem are the things that we're talking about, trauma, right? Fear, um, depression, anxiety. And without another solution, that's what I do, Mm -hmm. right? And so I went into college and I just used drugs every day, Oxycontin. That's all I used all day, every day for years. I'm going to fast forward a little bit. You know, the normal things happen in college that you would expect. Somebody who's doing Oxycontin all day and and middlemanning or selling drugs to afford their habit. Like I started seeing consequences. I went to jail for the first time for operating a forgery ring at 2021. Of what? Uh, Of money? Prescriptions. Prescriptions. Yeah. Yeah. Then, you know, so went to jail, got out, and then I was introduced to treatment for the first time. And the way that I was introduced to treatment was through the court. And they basically said, uh, you know, you got 49 counts of forgery. They're, they're all felonies. We'll run them all concurrent. And then we'll suspend this sentence. And all you got to do is complete treatment. And you're not a felon. And you don't go to prison. And you're good to go. So I do. I go to treatment. How old are you? 20, 21, maybe 22. And I get and it's in Prestonsburg, Kentucky, because Morehead State University is where I went to college. And I'm at this rehab, and it was horrible. And I get there, and I, I make it through. You know, there was no detox 
I mean, I'm sure it existed somewhere, but I, I didn't know about it. So I went there and I kicked cold turkey and I'm like five days in it. And I sit down with the case manager for the first time. And she says, um, yeah, you've got 30 days in this rehab and then you got to do a six month halfway house. And I remember thinking like, wait a minute, I, my sentence is only a year. And in Kentucky, six months kills a year. So I got to stay in rehab longer than I would stay in jail. And I went back to my little room that I shared with four guys and I got all my Jordans and my, my Abercrombie shirts and I started trading them with people and I gave this guy these Jordans for 10 bucks and this guy this shirt and I hit the road and in the middle of nowhere, you know, bought Oxycontin and Xanax within 10 minutes and went on the run. And that kind of kicked it off again. I ended up, my bright idea as I'm on the run because this charge was in Kentucky I was like, you know what? They're never going to find me because I'm going to go 10 miles away into the next state. Like that would solve everything. So I go to a, a different college, literally right across the border of Kentucky, Marshall University. Craziness ensues. And then I end up getting picked up and extradited back to Kentucky and, and taken to serve out my time. And this is such a, a crazy time with Oxycontin everywhere and still no one had a solution. I promise you, this is the truth. This is going to sound crazy. I get to this jail to do my time. And if you have a prescription of Oxycontin, they give it to you in the jail mm -hmm. at pill call. So I was so happy in this jail. Did you have any uh, conditions to kind of justify? Did you have like a back injury at all? No, no, I, you know, psychosomatic, because I'd been mm -hmm. in some some ATV wrecks and some car wrecks. So it was really easy for me to, you know, if you'd ask me then, I'd say, I can't live without them. My back, my L4, my L5. I didn't even know where my L4, L5 was. Uh, but no, no, maybe, maybe I needed like Ultram at mm -hmm. one point in life. Never did I need Oxycontin. So I'm in this jail and everyone has Oxycontin. And uh, I do six months, 21 days, got high every day. And it was at that point, I kind of realized it was probably an issue because I remember sitting in my cell one night and thinking like, if I had like an infinite supply of drugs, an infinite supply of Oxycontin, you could put me in a solitary confinement cell forever and I would be like super stoked. Mm -hmm. Like I would be happy. And then I remember thinking like, that's probably not a healthy thought, but it never dawned on me that I should stop getting high. I just didn't think it was a, I didn't think it was possible. I didn't know anyone who had stopped, mm -hmm. you know? So I get out and I, same kind of stuff. And I, I got, I went to treatment again. Then I, I decided I was going to change people, places, and things. So I came to South Florida and I moved down here and I was working for a brokerage firm and I was living in a sober living house in the beginning in Delray Beach. And I remember, and this is like, you know, delusions of, of grandeur, I was working for this brokerage firm and they dealt with, yeah, whatever. They dealt with investments. And I remember I, I was, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a kid from Southern Ohio, right? And these guys are coming to work and they're driving Lamborghinis and they're driving Ferraris. And I was watching them do their job and I was listening to them talk to, to clients and talk on the phone. And I remember very clearly thinking like, I can do this better than these people. Whatever they're doing, I'm going to do it and I'm going to do it better because really my my reasoning, I read a paper by the father of modern surgery as we know it. And he was a morphine addict. You guys can, you can read this paper if you want. And he, he essentially says in this paper, there's no such thing as an opiate problem. If you have enough opiates or the financial, 
you know, wherewithal to have an unlimited supply of opiates, you can live a perfectly normal life. And this is written by a guy who was doing that. He invented surgery, right? He's a surgeon. He's a scholar. He's not a drug addict like I'm a drug addict. And I didn't know that then. But clearly, this guy's doing a little morphine and he's like doing surgery. Meanwhile, like, you know, if I enact that allergy and do a little morphine, I'm like, you know, fist fighting somebody for the last push out of a crack pipe like mm -hmm. two days later. This guy isn't like that, right? But I read that paper and I said, I just need unlimited money. That's all I need. That's my solution. Not like, let me stop getting high. Just going to get enough money to buy all the drugs. It's the running out. That's the problem. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. That's the problem. Lack of drugs was my dilemma. So I thought. So I did, I did, you know, I, I picked everything up well. I'm a, I'm a, like you, like all of us for the most part, where I, I should keep it on me. I'm very manipulative by nature because I lived in addiction for so long. I like that. You know, I was talking about being manipulative at four or five years old. So I excel in professions that utilize, you know, the ability to sell somebody on, on anything. So I did well and I, I made money quickly and I moved up quickly. I'll tell you right now, the worst thing for me was having a lot of money, living in South Florida with a drug addiction because now it got crazy. You know, and now I'm doing, I've moved to IV drug use at this time. I am now- How old are you? Oh, uh, probably 25, 26. Now we're talking about like a lot of money and talking about making like what? 200 yeah. grand a year, 500 grand a year. So it started out, you know, when I first started succeeding, and this was a lot of money to me. I was making, you know, two, three grand a week mm -hmm. almost immediately. To me, that was insane. Of course. Right? I don't have a college degree. I, you know, thought I was going to have to sell cars for a living. And that very, very quickly, you know, to the point where some weeks I'd make $100,000, $150,000 in a week. Wow. You know, and um, I, I guess I was always taught, like you, that's how you keep score in life, right? When you get these things, when you have, you know, when you're making six figures a week and when you have these awesome cars and you have this house and, you know, that's when you're going to be happy. That's how you keep score. That's how your parents are proud of you, right? And I think that's like a byproduct of the American dream that we read in books and we see in TV. And like when I was at like the pinnacle of like financial success for me at the time, here, let me paint a picture for you. I had a Rolls Royce Phantom amongst a, a, a lot of other cars. But I had this Rolls Royce Phantom and the top of it was covered in blood because I would sit in the car before I would go into the office. You know, I'd be up three, four days on a cocaine and opiate bender. I don't have to get detailed. You guys know how it is. And there's, I'm squirting blood on the ceiling and I'm crying because I'm, I'm shooting drugs against my will. And that, that chapter of my life started where I did not want to fucking get high, bro. I didn't want to. I didn't want to hurt my family. I didn't want to continue to overdose once a month, right? But I didn't have a choice. You shooting heroin at this point or shooting the pills? So this was during the heyday of Florida where it was blues and Dilaudid everywhere. And I always, and this is probably why I'm alive to this day, I always preferred IVing prescription medication because I knew the dose, now, I did a lot of heroin in my day too. And if there was no other option, that's what I was doing. But I really, I did mostly Dilaudid, Roxy 30s, a lot of cocaine. And at this point, I'm doing it against my will and I don't want to do it, but I can't stop. You know, there's funny stories that float around to me about, I drove my Lamborghini through my house. 
Wow. It was just like complete chaos down here for years. And this is where I got introduced to like AA and NA and the community. And I never would put time together, but I would come around, right? And that seed was planted. And I started to get friends who are sober to this day. A lot of them own treatment centers. You know, they're, they're advocates. They do this stuff. But I started to get around people for the first time who I knew for a fact got high like I got high. And I now knew for a fact that they didn't get high anymore. Because when I first came around, especially NA meetings, didn't believe it. I didn't believe it, man. You guys are full of shit. You could, you know, there's no way you don't get high, whatever. You know, if you want to tell a good story to try to get the chick, I'll humor you. But I don't believe that you're not getting high. These guys and girls got sober and that's cool, but like they were happy. And I started to get like jealous of that. And that's like what motivates me. And it's like, I didn't care anymore about like all the, I didn't care about the watch or the next car because like I was empty. I was spiritually bankrupt. I, I wanted to kill myself every day. I'm going to fast forward and I'm not even going to mention his name, but there's, you know, one of those guys down here in South Florida, man, I, I love the guy to death and I love him to this day. And he had, you know, really tried to steer me in the right direction. And, you know, when I'd get too crazy at my firm, my firm would call him up He'd come in and he'd put me in treatment and I'd stay in treatment for two weeks and then I'd leave and then I'd start getting high again. But he was always like, he, he always really tried. One of the last times I got high in South Florida, I had the house in Boca, the one that I drove the car through. And we were having this party and it was- Like it you was, drove it through the garage or you drove it through no, the house? No, I drove it through the house. At one point, there was a big four-car garage in this house and the previous owner converted it to like a big man cave kind of sunroom, you know, so they built up like a two foot wall and then there was a big bay window. My girlfriend at the time was there. I was at, you know, I had just left the office. I'd been doing cocaine all day. We were at Hooters. We were having cocktails. And then I came home and, you know, she kept blowing me up, get home, get home, get home. So I finally leave and I'm four hours late and I just got this place. She was decorating when this happened. And I, I, right when I get in my car, I realized like I am on way too much cocaine to go home and act normal. So I had a lot of really great doctors down here at the time who would prescribe me uh, medicine to stay sober, Subutex, Adderall, and uh, Klonopin. And so I, I took like 20 Klonopins at, when I leave Fort Lauderdale, and I'm going to Boca. And by the time I get to my cul-de-sac, they really started mixing in with the alcohol. And as I'm pulling up, I just, I fall asleep. And the next thing I know, I wake up and I had ramped over that wall and I could see that the big screen was a foot away from me, you know, and I'm looking out the window at the big screen and I'm in the living room <laughs> and she's freaking out. And then I back over the rubble and I take the car down and I park it 200 yards from the house and I come back up and I call the police on myself. And I'm like, hey, somebody stole my car. I don't know, but I think they drove it to my house. I just got home from work. Wow. Yeah. They believed you? No, no. <laughs> Luckily, once again, and this is like, you know, I'm always bailed out of these things. My firm called the attorney. The attorney got there. The attorney talked to the cops. Technically, they couldn't prove I was on the road. And, you know, it's my property. So, I, you know, I got out of it. One of the last times I got high, you know, you know what? The, the detailed story doesn't matter. I overdosed in front of a lot of people who don't do drugs like I do drugs. And they took me to... The ER, I was in a coma for about three days, and I woke up, and this guy, this AA guy, was the person in my room. And I came to, and I, like, thanked him for being there. I started fumbling around because I had 
drugs on me that I was going to put in my, you know, I had a direct IV. I was about to get high in the hospital, which I did do. Mm-hmm. And he said, hey, I just want to let you know, like, you know, I love you, but the reason I'm here is because they were going to pull the plug on you and someone had to be here. And it, dude, it just, it hit me, you know? It really hit me that I wasn't going to live through this life. And he left and I got high in the hospital still. And I got high for weeks, maybe a couple months after that. And then I finally got to the point where I just wanted to die so bad that I called him. And I was like, I don't know, you know, what to do. I had already been to like all the high-end treatment centers. I'd been to the crappy, I'd been to everywhere. And I was like, I just don't know what to do. And he was like, just take some direction. And I went to, I don't even remember what it was called. I went to some crappy detox. They didn't even medicate me. And I stayed there for like eight days. And I got out and I started going to meetings and I got a sponsor. And I legitimately, I believed AA was a cult still, but I was desperate enough to just say, whatever, I'll fucking join a cult then. I was the same way. You I know? was like, if it's a cult, fuck it. Yeah. I'll drink the Kool-Aid, yeah. whatever, <laughs> stand on my head, yeah. whatever you need me to do. Yeah. yeah. And I started working steps. Shit started getting better, man. It got better pretty quick. I stopped doing what I was doing for a living, and I moved. I decided I'm just going to get out of here for a while. I got, you know, I'm starting to get my head back on my shoulders. I moved back to Ohio, and I started, like, working in treatment. And when I started working in treatment, like I worked at a Medicaid treatment center and I worked with, you know, a couple friends of mine who were attorneys and they were, you know, plugged in with the courts and we were getting people released to treatment instead of sent to prison and like worked at like really made me feel good about myself for the first time because I'd never done that, right? I never had a job when I was young. The only jobs I had ever had was ripping people off. You know, that's what I was doing. And I needed that. I needed to wake up every day and be able to build something. Whether that's, you know, I'm not very, you know, I'm not a construction guy. I'm not going to be able to build a house, right? But I think that would be just as rewarding to me. I had to find a way that I could build something instead of tear something down every day. And that's what like recovery, working in treatment, that's the feeling that that brought me. And it was like, I was happy for the first time ever. And then I'm going to fast forward because now it gets a little crazy. I'm two and a half years sober and I'm going to an AA meeting. There's 300 people outside. We're in Portsmouth, Ohio. You know, I'm pretty well known in AA there because I've, I, you know, at this point I'm taking service commitments and I'm, you know, speaking, giving leads and I'm, I'm involved. And I pull up to this AA meeting and I get out. I'm a sponsor at this point who has a sponsor, who has sponsees, some of which are there. And I get out and an F-150 pulls up and a guy says, Jake? I said, yeah. And they emptied out of this Ford truck and they said, federal agents, you're under arrest. In front of the whole meeting. I have no idea. I hadn't broke a law in years. Three years coming up on. And uh, they took me to the local jail and they told me I was being arrested for investment fraud from South Florida. You still had money at this point? Not or? really. Some, mm-hmm. you know, uh, not really. Um, so they took me to the, the county jail where I'm from, where I know everybody and they couldn't hold me there. So they take me to Butler County jail, which is the fed holding. And the indictment was from the Southern district of Florida. And essentially the judge said, do not give him bond. He still has money according to her. And 
He has been out of the country. He has the access to funds. He's going to run. Don't bond him out. We want to extradite him to the Southern District of Florida. We will then decide if he's going to be out on an ankle monitor or a bond or whatever. And so I sit in there for two days and I, they still have to give you a bond hearing. And I go to this bond hearing, dude, I'm so ashamed. You know what I mean? I'm sober, bro. And I'm, I'm in federal holding and I'm, I hadn't really called anybody other than my mom and I don't want anyone to know. And I go out to this bond hearing and like, there are like so many people that drove an hour and a half to Cincinnati to be there for me and speak for me at this bond hearing. I didn't ask them to. These are AA people. These are like people that are just standing up and saying, hey, in 2011, he may have been a real piece of shit. We're not saying he wasn't, but like, this is what he does now, mm -hmm. you know? Over and over, everyone's saying that. And they, they gave me bond. They let me bond out. They put an ankle monitor on me. And the judge basically said, I had no intention of letting you out of here today, but whatever you're doing in your life, I think you're turning it around. So I'm going to let you bond out. Don't make me regret it. And so I, I spent the next, you know, a little over a year on an ankle monitor, flying myself back and forth to Miami to go to court. I got sentenced to prison. I knew I was going to. What'd they give you? 26 months. There was, you know, big newspaper articles down here. It was $18 million. And they Did get, a whole bunch of people get arrested yeah, too? Mm-hmm. Yep. There was five of us. Five of us get arrested. Five of us go to prison. And I'll tell you, like, the, it's crazy. It, like, it chokes me up. The coolest thing about AA and sobriety, like, to me, and it dawned on me during this time, was like, look, the fact that I stopped shooting dope and I stopped drinking, that's pretty cool, Right. But I'm, to, I'm not convinced that I probably could have done that without AA when things got really bad enough. I'd have been miserable, but I probably could have done it because I see people now do it. There's, there's other solutions. But this is, I was able to face this and look at it for what it was. No fear. Of course, I had the, the normal fears like I'm going to federal prison. I could get stabbed. I'm not, you know, uh, there's no delusions here. I know I'm not the toughest guy going to this federal prison, right? So those are there. But I had no fear about like getting sentenced to prison. Like I, I knew it was an opportunity to pay an amends that I owed mm -hmm. to the federal government, to the country. And I was like excited to like have the chance to do it. Mm -hmm. And it, it was like it dawned on me that like AA did this for me, right? I didn't do this for me. My friends didn't do this for me. This is a God thing. This is an AA thing. Because normal me, I'm full of fear. I'm full of worry. I'd have got high over that. That's not sure. an abstinence thing. No. No, because if I was abstinent, I would have got high. Because they sentenced me and then let me go home. And then you get a certified letter from federal BOP. They tell you what prison you're going to. And then you get to self-surrender. Abstinent me would have 100% got high. Yeah. And ran. Once, you know, once I got high, then I would have ran. But I go to federal prison, and I try to be careful when I say this. It was a cool experience. It was an interesting – from a guy who – listen, all my heroes are drug and someone who's been sober for three yeah, years. Yeah, dude. All of my – I grew up. My heroes were drug addicts. The musicians I listened to, the authors, the poets that I read. You know, I was big into Beat Generation, writers, Kerouac, Burroughs, Hunter S. Thompson. I love a good story, right? And so, like – there was some good stories in federal prison. You know, I'm in there with, you know, Ralph DeLeo, the capo of the Colombo crime families, like my cellmate. It was an interesting time. But cooler than that was like I got to bring a message of like recovery and sobriety in the federal prison. And I didn't go to a camp. And right? a lot of my friends that got in trouble did. I have a 
pretty long rap sheet. You know, I went to a medium high. I went to a real deal. Most of the people in there are doing life sentences. I didn't go in there preachy or like AA evangelical, but it just like I had this aura that that God and AA gave me where these people were just kind of like, what do you mean I don't need to smoke K2 and do substrips all day? <laughs> you know what I mean? What do you mean I can have a peace to me without that? And, you know, I, I vibed with some of these guys, man, and, and I don't know if I helped them or not, but they helped me. They helped me because I, I got to like live the life that got me sober even in there. And I get out and I got right back into what I was doing working in treatment, et cetera. And now I'm going to fast forward to a really important part, the relapse. And I feel like this is a really important part because this was like, you know, it's hard to deal with a relapse after, you know, I got five years sober at this point. And um, I'd gotten really busy in life and I was not spending a lot of time sponsoring guys, not spending a lot of time doing an inventory at night, doing all the things that I knew I needed to stay sober. And, and I can, once I'm sober for a little while, I can quit doing all that and be fine, right? Until the shit hits the fan, mm -hmm. right? And the shit hit the fan. And uh, somebody who was raised with me that I consider my sister uh, overdosed on heroin and died. And then I had to go speak at her funeral. And then I didn't process it. I didn't run it by anybody. I just, you know, kept it trucking. Then I had kidney stones. And it was like such a large kidney stone that there was no way around it. Had to take pain medicine. And I had had like a tooth thing before this where I took pain medicine and it was fine because I had accountability. I let my mom know, my sponsor know, hey, I got these, you know, Vicodin 5s. I'm going to give them to you. Give me one every four hours for two days. No issue. There are times where you need pain medicine and there are ways to do it. Yeah. And you do it not thinking like you have a big ego. You're like, look, this is important. Yeah. I want to stay clean through this. I'm going to give my pills to somebody. I'm going to let people know. I'm going to let the doctor know I'm in recovery. And you do it and you have people there with you. And when people relapse on pain meds, it's when they just have the surgery or whatever, and they don't really tell anybody and they think it's not a big deal. And then they get home and there's no more pills in the bottle. And it's great that you say that because that was me. And that was me coming up on five years sober, who was like, well, who am I going to run this by? I'm Mr. Sober. I'm a spiritual, I got this. You know what I mean? I don't, I'm, I got too big of an ego. I'm not going to, you know, ask somebody. I'm good. A dentist doesn't go to the dentist. <laughs> and then one pill, right? And then they're as prescribed for a day. And then I thought, well, I was in college for like seven years before I dropped out. So I'm basically a doctor, right? So I'm in extra pain today. I'm a smart guy. Uh, I can double my dose mm -hmm. because I've doubled the pain. And then, so you double the dose. And then uh, within two days, I went out and I bought 50 grams of heroin. Wow. And, and at once. How much? I don't even remember, bro. <laughs> I don't even remember. It was Portsmouth, Ohio, really bad, bad heroin. The same guy that I was telling the story about earlier that was by my hospital bed, I, I sent him a photo of it when I wow. bought it. I knew where I was going, right? Because I knew that I have a physical allergy and I know that once you take one, it's over. And I knew that right when I doubled that dose up, it was curtains. I knew it. So I bought it. I sent it to him. I said, hey, going to be in detox soon. And um, I started getting high. Dude, after all that time, I went back to where I was five years earlier in three days. Dope sick without it. I clearly still had some, but I'd wake up in the morning dope sick. Hygiene went out the window that quick. Felt like I was never sober. And then I stayed out. I stayed out for a couple months. 
Not because I enjoyed getting high, because let me tell you, it was fucking miserable. I didn't even have fun at all, right? The whole, you know, head full of AA, belly full of booze thing was, was going on. Heroin sucks these days anyways. And I was just, I was miserable and I let everybody down and my parents and everybody. But I was so ashamed. I didn't want to come back in the rooms and I, I was just going to get high till I died. And the only thing that saved my life was uh, I went to jail. Because I was on federal probation. It's considered supervision. You have to do a supervision amount when you get out. And, you know, I was failing drug tests. And I, you know, I got picked up for DUI and whatever, had a needle. And thank God they put me in jail because I was going to get high till I died. That was my plan. And this is only three years ago, you know. Sat in that jail cell, man, kicking heroin again, in the middle of nowhere. And I was miserable for about three days. And then I was like, this is what I need. And then I just knew like this was like a divine intervention. It's the kind of person I am. Like you almost have to, you got to physically take me away from it because I'm not going to stop. Mm-hmm. was in jail for, I don't even remember, 30 days, 45 days. And I got out and probation, uh, the supervision, they could have sent me back to federal prison. I had to come down here to go to court again. And thankfully I have a federal judge I don't know what the protocol is. I'd love to say her name, but I won't. But I have a a federal judge that's been around the system for so long that all through all of this, she saw my problems for what they were, right? She knew I wasn't a bad person or a criminal. She knew I was a really bad drug addict. And once again, she she knew this is a relapse. I'm not going to put him back in prison for 20 months again. And she said, I'm going to give you one chance. And if you fail a drug test, anything, you're going back to prison. And I ran with it. And I I got back involved probably like I never have. And the last thing I'll say about like the relapse, and it's kind of crazy, is like when it happened, I thought that was the worst thing that could happen to me. I was embarrassed. It was like my life was over. I was probably going to federal prison. There was nothing positive I could see coming out of that situation. I thought my world was over. And in a very short amount of time, getting back into step work, getting back around the right people. I looked back at it and saw it for what it was. And it was like literally the best thing that could have happened to me. And it's crazy the way that AA and, you know, you, you hear the literature, a new pair of glasses, but it gives you that new perspective. And like now, even coming up on three years later, the whole thing was the best thing that could have happened to me. The relapse too, because like I learned not just from doing the step work and learning about myself and I learned from these mistakes and what I did wrong and what I didn't do and what did that feel like, right? And so like, listen, I'm a big believer. Like I work in treatment now and I I write about treatment and I speak about treatment and I'm a big fucking believer that drug addicts are my people because they are the most brilliant, intelligent, creative, empathetic, compassionate people that I've ever met. And having the ability to be around drug addicts all day, every day, dude, it's such a blessing. Feels like home. It's it's such a blessing, bro. And none of this would have happened had the relapse not happened. Mm -hmm. I would have ended, who knows what I would have done, you know, for a living or or whatever. Yeah. A lot of people ask me, you know, like, do you fear relapse? But, um, you know, in in the literature that I read, you know, it says that, you know, our greatest enemies is, is complacency. So, like, I fear complacency. You know, I don't fear, like, oh, I'm going to wake up and relapse because it's not going to happen like that. Complacency happens first. It's complacency and apathy, like those two things where I just start feeling apathetic 
about being clean. I'm no longer enthusiastic. And enthusiasm is contagious. You know, once you get around some people that are really into recovery and they're helping you move forward, like you can't help but also move forward. And then once you get away from those people, it starts to slip and it starts to slip and it starts to slip. And then you stop doing the things you need to do. And then sometimes people use when things happen really good to them. You know, sometimes it's not a death. Sometimes it's a raise at work. Sometimes it's meeting the girl of your dreams. And now you're spending all this time with this girl and you don't really need to go to meetings. You don't need to call your sponsor. And that complacency happens. And sometimes it takes three months. Sometimes it takes three years. But eventually, in my opinion, in my experience, I've seen people go back to using, whether it starts with a beer or whether it starts with prescription drugs or something. Yeah. I want to read an article that someone sent me. And I thought it was so funny when I first saw it. I was like, oh, my God, no way. And then when I saw that it was your name, I I couldn't believe it. it was so funny. Man arrested for public nudity appeared to be driving an imaginary race car. So when I first saw this, I was like, wow, that's hilarious. And then I kept reading it, and I was like, holy shit. So it says, police responded Tuesday night to reports of a fully nude man yelling, pacing in circles, swinging his underwear around, and making engine noises in the hallway of his apartment (laughs) complex. Witness told police the man appeared to be driving an imaginary car. Officers heard yelling and found Jake naked in a stairwell of Midtown Lofts apartment in South College Ave. Though he was holding a towel, according to police, it was not covering his genitals. Um, Jake told police he was showering when his friends took his shorts, part of an ongoing prank, and he was in the hallway trying to find them. He confirmed to police he does own more than one pair of shorts. One, one witness told police he or she heard yelling for at least 45 minutes before they called 911. At least two residents reported the incidents. Officers reported uh, his pupils were restricted and he was sweating profusely at the time of his arrest. Police say he admitted to drinking but denied any illegal drugs. <laughs> Is that when you got arrested? That's, that's the what, last arrest? That's the last arrest, bro. That's how I get high. You know what I mean? I'm one of, listen, I, I don't... <laughs> you love cars, bro, obviously. I, I do. I'm a big car guy. Big car guy. Bro, I get, I get high to, you know, I get, I get high to die. You know what I mean? That's like, I, I get so high that I'm on another planet and that's just what happens. And then I overdose and then, you know, and it's, yeah. So you would, you would have never convinced me that something like that happening, you know, I would relatively soon after three years later, be able to look back and, and be glad it happened and laugh about it. Yeah, man. And a lot of, you know, a few of these guys are guys that you know really well. Um, you're even one of them. But I, I was very fortunate when I came back that I have a lot of people around me that are legitimately sober, right? And they would never like judge me for getting high or for an article like that, right? That they would welcome me back with open arms and be like, all right, you know, that's a pretty funny, you know, believe me, I got made fun of for it. But it's like, this is how we're going to get you back on track, right? And I had one of my best friends now He's been my best friend for about three years. Bro, basically just kind of like, you know, in retrospect, he didn't tell me he was doing it, but he kind of like, you know, put his arm around me and said like, this is the path you're going to go for a while. Bro, because I had like, you know, six months clean and a couple of it was in jail, you know, and like I had no idea and I was bored and I didn't know what I was going to do with life. And he just said, hey, man, you're going to do this thing with me for a while. Bro, and without people like this around me, and I've always been fortunate to have these kinds of people, dozens, hundreds of them. 
but now I know how to like, you know, to utilize it. And so that kind of brings us up to, uh, to where I'm at today. Like I said, I, I work in treatment. I do a lot of advocacy in Ohio. I live in Columbus, Ohio, work with a lot of harm reduction organizations. I do a lot of writing about addiction. I've been fortunate enough to, to team up with Dan Levin from the New York Times several times about the opioid epidemic in Ohio. And I help a friend of mine run a, a gigantic blog about addiction where he writes about his personal struggles with it. And we got to start another very big blog. And I've it's just been so cool, man, because really none of it's work. I get to vibe with guys like you. I get to vibe with other people in addiction and, you know, clean from addiction. And it's just, it's so cool. So uh, you're living back in Ohio now, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. I know Ohio, I think they say, you know, people are always like, oh man, the drug problem in this state is so bad. I'm like, in every state, you know, in every single state, there's a rampant epidemic of drugs going on. And um, people don't realize that it's from the opioid crisis that has happened and has still going on. And now you have millions of people addicted to opiates. Now they can't get specific opiates. So I remember seeing articles of like, oh my God, they got rid of Oxycontin. It's like, okay, bro, they're still getting Roxy's and they're still doing Dilaudid's. And, you know, how did you feel about the Purdue article that just came out that everyone's been like circling that they have to repay back like $3 billion or something. Yeah. And the actual, and, and, you know, maybe we can post a link, but the New York times ran the article and then they reached out to me and did another article where I got to kind of comment on it. And I'm not bringing this up because woohoo, it's the New York times. I'm bringing it up because they really edited my, my opinion on that. Uh, because to me, it's, it's, it's disrespectful. I right? agree. It's when people sent it to me, I was like, that's nothing. Like that that's not like a win for us. Like to no. me, yeah, it's great. The Sackler family is they're gonna end up having to give up two, three billion dollars tops. They're worth twenty, right? Doesn't it's not gonna hurt them financially. This is a this is a family that is responsible for a hundred thousand plus deaths a year for decades. And no one's going to go to jail. And those are just the deaths. Those Imagine the deaths. all the overdoses, the families that have been tear apart. And I'm not here to say, like, I don't feel like a victim because I don't think my drug use was, like, a victim thing where um, I was headed down that path anyways. If I was in Montana, I'd be doing meth. If I was, I was just a drug addict. I would have found something. I did find readily available prescription drugs that are similar to heroin, where I have friends that would shoot heroin and shoot pills and be like, oh, the pills are better than the heroin. Like, that's how close we're talking in proximity of being like heroin. I don't feel like a victim because it's not like I hurt my back at 30 years old and never did a drug before and got addicted to pills. But a lot of people are. There are hundreds of thousands of stories of people, young kids that never had a drug problem and in high school got prescribed Perk 30s. or And we're not talking about oh, they gave me 15 Roxy's. We're talking about they gave me 110 yeah. on my first visit, Yeah, you know? Yeah. And then who's going to say no to selling them once you realize the street value of them yeah. and the doctor shopping and all that shit? So when people send me that article, I like I just scoff like, yeah, it's, yeah, it's not like I don't feel satisfaction no. from that at all. I would prefer that there's more treatment available for addicts. Like I would prefer... That if an addict wanted to go to detox, he can. Yeah. If someone needs detox right now, I would really like it if they could just pick up a phone and go. And it's not that easy. If you don't have health insurance or money, 
good luck. It's very hard to find a county-run facility. Florida has some of the best county-run facilities. In Florida, we're super grateful to have uh, Bark and IRT and all these other places that if you don't have money, yeah, there's a waiting list. But if you're persistent, like they'll let you in. Uh, most states don't have shit like that. It's a two or three day maybe in a state-run hospital and then you're out the door and then figure it out on your own. And in that, that's so crazy to me too because like this is a you know, Sackler family and Purdue Pharma and the opioid epidemic and you know the, the new president-elect has a son who struggled with it. This has been in the, in the public eye for, for years now. Right, and I and I know because every publication in Ohio, the Columbus Dispatch, they all, you know, it's it's kind of transparent. They they want a story every month, you know, about the opioid epidemic because they know that it's like everyone's affected by it. So we've known this for so long. Why don't we have that? Why is it so hard, you know, to get treatment in in certain states without, you know, if you don't, even if you do have Medicaid, if you don't have insurance, if you don't have these things, and that circles back to the Sackler family, like why, why are we not taking all $20 billion in building treatment centers, you know, in every county? Mm -hmm. That's what frustrates me when I read articles about that, you know? How's the opiate epidemic in Ohio right now? It's bad, man. It's really bad. Fentanyl made it a lot worse. And it's, it's crazy because like we had, you know, we were the pill mill capital of the world for a while before they really caught on in Florida. And at the time, even I would have said so had I been sober, that like them cracking down on the pill mills, everyone thought was going to be a good thing. It was the worst thing that could have happened because the pill mills were closed down and then the drug cartels moved in and then it became black tar heroin. And then fentanyl came in. Right, people started realizing they could, you know, increase their profit margins, and now it's it's devastating. And meth and ice is really bad in Ohio, and that's man, you know, like yeah, people make it. I can, you know, just based on mutual connection from being an addict, I can usually get through to an heroin addict, right, to to get some help. It's tough to get through to somebody on ice, man, and it makes it really, really hard. Um, Even in treatment, in yeah. treatment, you have someone on on meth, and and the insurance company doesn't want to cert them yep. for detox or res. Yep. Uh, they're saying that they don't meet uh, criteria to be in a, a, a lockdown type of uh, detox or something. Yeah. And then it takes them a week, two weeks to even know where the fuck they're at. You know, you got someone coming off hardcore meth use, dude. You know, they got rabbit in their blood, bro. They're not staying yep. anywhere for longer than four or five days, talking to themselves, hearing voices, yeah. all sorts of shit. Yeah. And Columbus, Ohio is like, you know, it's very, they're very good about keeping certain areas of Columbus. It looks very presentable and it's very upscale and the downtown is clean and it's nice. But when you go into certain areas of Columbus, it's a war zone, right? And and the rural areas of Southern Ohio are even worse. So, you know, the three states right there, I think West Virginia is number one in overdose deaths. Ohio is number two and Kentucky's like number four. And these uh -huh. are states that border each other, right? And that's not a coincidence and I won't harp on it anymore, but it is not a coincidence that that exact area leads the nation by far in opioid deaths and it's the exact area that Purdue Pharma targeted, period. Well, I appreciate you coming out, man. Love you very much. It's always good to see you. Love you too, bro. Anything else you want to say? No, no. You know what? No, I'm good. <laughs> I'm good, man. You sure? Yeah. What were you going to say? I don't remember now. All right. Well, I appreciate you so much, bro. I appreciate you. Thank you. Yep.
This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. This show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com.